The following podcast contains spoilers. We strongly recommend you watch the episode of The Americans We're Discussing before you listen to the podcast. New episodes air Wednesdays at 10 p.m. on FX. If the show had spent six seasons being FBI versus KGB, that would not be that interesting a show, and all those things would have had to have been resolved a long time ago. Now we're in the final stretch, and that relationship is the core relationship, and it's heating up. We might have gone in all sorts of tangential directions along the way and had a great deal of fun doing it, but now here we are back at the molten center of the show. Hello and welcome to the Americans podcast for the sixth and final season. I'm June Thomas, managing producer of Slate Podcasts and your host for the series, which goes behind the scenes of the show. Later, I'll chat with Amanda Pollock, who has been an editor on the Americans since season one. But first, let's hear from Stephen Schiff and Justin Weinberger, who wrote this episode, Rafifi. And just a note, Justin was called away to deal with some script coordinator tasks during this interview, which explains his quietness. I am here in uh, Glorious Gowanus with Stephen Schiff and Justin Weinberger, who wrote episode 606, Rafifi. Hello, Stephen. Hello. And hello, Justin. Hey, June. At the beginning of the episode in the teaser, Philip and Elizabeth are in very different places. They almost seem to be trying to hurt one another. And for once, they seem physically alienated from each other. Can you crystallize what caused that rift? Philip is waiting for her to come home. She's coming home after a a somewhat merry time (laughs) with uh, Claudia and Paige. And he's waiting because he has something to tell her and it's something she's not going to like. And so they're in very, very Mm. different spaces, shall we say, Mm -hmm. in every way. Henry, as we know, is almost a savant, like, or at least we haven't seen where he got this from, but he he really is very intuitive about his parents, and he doesn't get why she's unhappy. She's got everything. Oh, Mom called. What'd she say? She called for me. Oh. That's nice. Yeah, but she was asking about, like, school and the weather. It was weird. Because she never really calls me. We barely ever talk. But all of a sudden, she's calling me from a business trip and asking about English class. I don't know. Whatever. I just really don't understand why she's so unhappy. What? I don't understand why she's so unhappy. She has a nice life, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's very profound for one thing, but is he right? The revelation of that and what happens when when Henry says that in, in pure Henry ease is that Philip sees something about his wife, about his marriage, that he's been cut off from. And he's been cut off from that by the argument that they're having, by the anger between them. Yeah. And suddenly that door opens enough for him to feel his heart sort of pouring out 
it's suddenly a perspective he needed. And of course, kids can do that for, for their parents, but this is a very odd arrangement. Maybe it happens all the more because of the oddity of the arrangement. So it's the speaking out loud that Elizabeth is unhappy, that, that Henry can see that. Is that what, what opens Philip's heart? Because he must know that she's unhappy, right? She has a hard job to do. Unhappiness is not really the term in which she would use to, <laughs> to right. measure her life. As far as characters opening each other's eyes in this episode, one thing that's pretty striking for me is that Henry has come into this from a position where he has a perspective on, on his family. Um, that is because he doesn't spend every day with them. And as a result of Henry just observing this family unit, he actually influences it and, as you say, makes some things conscious for Philip that perhaps were not quite conscious. Mm -hmm. And certainly there's a lot simmering for Paige and Elizabeth, and and it, it comes together in a really, really interesting way. It's almost a, a Heisenbergian situation because simply by observing this, he's altering the course of his family story. Anyone who's been in a relationship for a long time, or, or certainly has been in a marriage, you harden into your role and into your position. I don't think Philip has used the word unhappy, thinking of of Elizabeth. I think I think he thinks she's tired. Maybe he's been, he's been spending the whole season trying to find out where she's at, and partly because he's trying to convey that uh, in a spy way to someone else. Yeah. Just the way Henry says that, the use of that word, it's all of a sudden like this strange light floods in, and and that's when Philip has to make that final connection with Elizabeth. Why Rafifi? Was it just that this was playing in DC that week? Or was there something about the movie Rafifi that you wanted to kind of refer to? I think it's more, there's something about the movie Rafifi. And there's something about, you know, the, the as we began to speak about this intern story about Jackson, uh, that character and what, what kind of person he was going to be. Uh, Justin and I went back and forth, I mean, endlessly about what that story was going to be, what kind of kid he was going to be. We... Uh, we're mindful of a similar honey trap in season two with the young Navy guy, Brad, remember, who was also younger and naive and all that stuff. And so we didn't want to go that route exactly. Mm -hmm. Coming up with the idea that he was a film nerd and stuff, it was a process. Believe me, it was quite a process. <laughs> we knew he was going to be an intern in Sam Nunn's office. That's kind of all we knew for a long time. It could have been a million movies, yeah. although, you know, the title of Rififi is very special. In this episode, we have Elizabeth as Elizabeth, as Wendy Gallagher, and indirectly as Stephanie because we see the influence that Erica's had on her. How do you go about creating those other identities when you're writing? Are they separate characters in your head or are they aspects of Elizabeth? They're disguised Elizabeth, right? We have to imagine what that voice would be. And yet they're really fed by Elizabeth. For instance, yeah. Elizabeth is puzzled by the fact that Erica's a painter, an artist. And that's real Elizabeth. That's not just Stephanie, but that's Elizabeth filtered through Stephanie. Yeah. And Elizabeth unfiltered through Stephanie might have more to say about that and might never have gotten to the point where she starts to sketch. But Elizabeth through Stephanie is transformed a little bit, yeah. is turning into a different person. That process interests us a lot. You know, Wendy Gallagher is a very specific woman in a way. She's not unrelated to all the other Elizabeths, but I think I would know her and I certainly would be able to tell her apart from Stephanie. We also do an interesting thing, which is that we write disguise biographies oh. for all the, all the dozens of disguises that we have. And that helps, you know, wardrobe and makeup figure out 
who we're trying to portray. And sometimes the, the biography may follow our meetings with costumes and makeup. Mm-hmm. They're not long. They're just a few sentences. Who are these people? For instance, when we're doing surveillance scenes, they're in disguise. Yeah. We have bios for each of those disguises, even when the disguises change. That just helps us get the job done. It's always interesting to me which particular historical nuggets or moments make it into the show. And you have Stan and his partner, Peterson, investigating Mayor Barry, Mayor Marion Barry. Why that particular case? Well, we wanted Stan to be having a lot of fun, really, in his new job. Murder and corruption and, and all this thing. You know, this is such a relief to Stan after having a job of looking at everybody sideways, basically, for a long time. And he is enjoying this. And we looked at what would be contemporary to this moment in 1987 that he might well be on. And lo and behold, it was Marion Barry time. What could be juicier? What could be better? This is one of the most outlandish characters in Washington history. And almost everything you can say about him is colorful, fun, astonishing. And so we have these moments where basically that information is coming into Stan. And sure enough, he's astonished and interested. And they all are. You know, this is this is about as great a chess game as they could be playing at the FBI. Stan loses his cool a bit in this episode, which really hasn't happened for a long time, as far as I can remember. Why is he so stressed out? As you say, he's on this really cool case that's, you know, just the one that he can sink his teeth into. He's gotten off this team that was filling him with so much aggravation and self-doubt. Is it that they keep trying to pull him back into Well, yeah, but June, think about how he got off that team. You know, they were horribly, horribly murdered in front of their child. And that's disturbing to him. He's been running those people since season five. And You're talking about Gennady and Sophia. Gennady and Sophia, that's exactly right. And, you know, has been trying to protect them. And every every time they inch closer to disaster, he's been the only thing that stood between them and the precipice. And now it's over. And it's been horrible. Yes, he's been very happy to be out of counterintelligence. He's now in the criminal investigative division. That's a different place. He's doing Marion Barry. He's off on a different floor. And for Adderholt, his old buddy his dear friend, to come in and say, come on back to this world where, as Stan says, you know, every time I go there, somebody winds up dead. No wonder he's stressed out. It's like it's it's like Godfather 3. He's being pulled back in again. He doesn't want it. How did the scene at the slot track racetrack come about? Originally, we were going to have a mini golf scene there. And not for the first time. You'll remember uh, yeah. we had a pretty memorable one with Paige and, and Pastor Tim and, and Alice. And we began to realize that because of the timing, uh, you know, late fall into December, and it was, you know, a pretty chilly time to go romping around a mini golf. Many, many mini golfs aren't even open during those, those seasons. We began to look for something else that they might do that might be fun, that might be visual, that might reflect what goes on in that scene, which is that Philip is really expressing uh more than ordinary frustration in a rather uncompetitive and simple game. So we went to slot car racing and we, we found a beautiful, beautiful, maybe the last slot car place around to do it in. And, and uh, you'll see the scene is, is great fun. At the track, when he gets frustrated, Philip gets to let loose a fuck. Now, FX does allow that word in appropriate circumstances. We're um, so thrilled. <laughs> But am I right in thinking that it's a word that required more discussion than most? I mean, did you have to get sign-off for that word in a way that you don't usually have to get sign-off? Not really. I mean, once once we got the sign-off, we got the sign-off. 
and it's and we we kind of understand what that means. It, it, we we can't you know turn it into a David Mamet play. <laughs> you know we're 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 going to use it judiciously, and that was uh, that's what we judge to be judicious. Philip letting go of Stavos was surprisingly disturbing to me. He's been there from the start. How did that come to be part of this episode? Like it's very important to. Philip's state of mind. Yeah, because, I mean, it, it shows how extreme things are getting. Because if you're going to fire Stavos, things are getting pretty bad. This is the American dream failing for Philip. And here's, you know, this wonderful immigrant man who's so loyal being cut off and let go because the American dream didn't work out for Philip. It's the wages of capitalism <laughs> in action. Yeah. And it should be as wrenching as it is. The final conversation between Elizabeth and Philip is one of the most indirect they've ever had. It's this really weird combination of truth-telling and truth-avoidance. And yet something really makes Philip change his mind and want to help with this operation in Chicago. And she doesn't understand why. And she's almost trying to tell him, no, don't do it. Almost as if he's kind of indicating that he doesn't think she can do it. How do you see her reaction? Why does, why does she push him away? Well, I don't think she is pushing him away. I think this is part of the mysterious sort of semaphore language of marriage. You know your partner. You know what they need. You know what they're not saying and what they are saying even by not saying something. And you, you read the signals. And the question is, do you want to step in? Do you want to step into the gap that they're leaving when they don't say everything they mean? Mm -hmm. And this is a, a gesture of love and support that he's making there. He loves her and he's, and they've been angry, sure. And, and, you know, things are not always good, but this, you know, this is life or death and he hears it and he knows it. And he's gotten the signal from Henry that she's quote, unhappy. And he, you know, his heart is going out to her. She hasn't had that conversation with Henry. She doesn't know that Henry took away from that conversation. Oh, she's so unhappy. She's there in this difficult situation, wanting, you know, more than anything to reach out to him, and yet wanting more than anything not to. And for him to make that call, and to make himself available, and to say, you know, somewhat gingerly, you're doing all this on your own, hasn't been working out that great lately, is a big thing for him to stay and to say, and if she were a little less worried about it, she might get defensive and fight it. And then for him to say, yeah, I'm the asshole I always was, is him saying, I know what your objections are. I know, I know. It's really almost a scene that if they were in the same room, they could play without dialogue. Mm. It goes so deep into their relationship and is a reflection of how deep their relationship goes. The FBI are on the trail of the Russian illegals and they seem closer than ever. And it's interesting that as that happens, I, as a viewer or as, as somebody experiencing the show, realized a rooting interest that I really didn't know that I had. In this war between the FBI and the KGB, I realized I do care who wins, that I'm not equally satisfied whoever you know has a win on this. This competition between the two groups is back on the surface after years, maybe not a subtext, but as, as be, having been tamped down. Well, I think as a practical matter, if the show had spent six seasons being FBI versus KGB, that would not be that interesting a show, and it probably wouldn't have lasted six seasons, and, <laughs> and, and all those things would have had to have been resolved a long time ago. Now, you know, we're in the final stretch, we're heading there, and that relationship, that 
is the core relationship and it's heating up. We might, we might have gone in all sorts of tangential directions along the way and had a great deal of fun doing it. But now here we are back at the molten center of the show. It's a sort of emotionally pivotal episode. And one interesting thing about it is that it's, among other things and among many other things, it's a Henry episode. And that's, that's unusual. A lot depends on Henry in this episode. A lot of people who, who watch the show have been saying, oh, you always shunt Henry aside. And oh, shit, Henry, you know, Henry's, you know, a forgotten person. Well, he's not a forgotten person this time. And it'll be very interesting to, to, for, for people to watch and see what role Henry really plays in this family. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And since I've always wondered what a script coordinator does, I asked Justin Weinberger that very question. I'm here today with script coordinator Justin Weinberger, who is also the co-writer of episode 606, Rafifi, and the author of the young adult novel Reformed. Before we get going, longtime listeners of this podcast might remember that Molly Nussbaum, who hosted season three, was the show's script coordinator. Justin, how long have you had the job and what does it entail? Uh, yeah, I took over for Molly in season four, and I've been here since. The job is one of those jobs that's difficult to describe. Uh, the way I, you know, usually tell people about it is like, if you can describe what it is, then you can do it. It's a lot of different things. Working with the showrunners on the day to day work that they do is a big part of it. Every script that we publish, every draft that we publish goes through my desk and out into the world. As somebody who really only saw scripts for the first time, around this show they're very specific it seems like the rules are very strict and who sets those rules well there's a lot of of formatting um there's a there's a lot of stuff that's very industry standard that helps the production team uh know exactly what page literally pun intended to be on it's a lot of of professionally being neurotic (laughs) so there's formatting concerns and then I know from having received a lot of different versions of the script from you, because I'm fortunate enough to be on, I believe, the, or maybe at least one distribution alias for the scripts. Every time there's a revision, you have to send out a new version to everyone, right? Yeah. And why? It's making sure that everybody has the same document that they're working from. The worst thing that can happen is people don't have the, the correct pages and show up if they're an actor not having the right lines or if they're the DP, then not knowing what to light, you know, I mean, there's just everybody to do their job has to be working from the same document. And I notice when the different versions are sent in the email, even though I'm getting a soft copy, it's just an attachment. You always say like pink version or goldenrod version. Can you decode that for me? Of course we, uh, we have this lovely color wheel, Every draft has a different color. We do produce hard copies that are those colors. So that's why it's called that. If you got a hard copy of the pink pages, they would, they would in fact be pink. Does the whole script get changed to the new color or do you insert the pink pages into the 
old color. We very cleverly, and I'm sure very interestingly for everybody listening, <laughs> we have a system where whatever's on the page, page, page one uh, in, in the original production draft will still be page one, no matter what color we go to. The first thing on the page will still be the first thing on the page. The last thing on the page will still be the last thing on the page. If if it gets longer, then we will create a page 1A. And that way you do collate just the individual pages into your original script. So you get a kind of script of many colors by the end, potentially? Oh, yeah. It's a nice rainbow. What's your favorite part of the job? I'm the first person who gets to see the story. Before we sign off this week, let's hear from editor Amanda Pollock about what her job entails. How does your job work? Can you talk us through the work an editor does in each episode? It really starts with receiving the script at a certain point, a few weeks before they start shooting, and attending a tone meeting where we sit with the writers and the director, the producers, DP sometimes, and the writers and the director mostly speak about the tone of of every scene that they're hoping to get out of the shooting. And that's really helpful for an editor to listen to. I mean, it's an amazing meeting to be part of because it's usually two to three hours and very specific notes around the hopes of the tone of each scene, scene to scene. So that's helpful. So when I go into editing, I'm kind of looking for things they talked about regarding story beats, emotional beats of the characters and the, and the story. Then they start shooting the episode and we're getting the dailies, uh, the footage the next day after they shoot. And I'm in my room with the script and the footage on my own, just sticking it together as what feels best to me. It's really instinctual regarding what's on the page and what's on the screen in front of me. And I just start sticking the scenes together one at a time. The assistants put the footage together for us in scene bins. And what's the scene bin? What would you find in there? In a day's shoot, they might shoot something from scene four, scene 72, scene 12, and scene six that would be in the day's shooting order. So the assistant will organize the footage and group clips together that might be AB camera so I can pop back and forth between the AB and then put all the clips for scene one in one bin, all the clips for scene six in one bin, and I'll have it in my Avid. I'll see uncut scenes in a folder and the scenes that were shot that day so I can open it up and look at all the footage that was shot for scene six that day and start sticking it together. My mind is a little bit blown by the thought that you have views from two cameras always two cameras at least two cameras no not always two cameras it's depending on what's happening in the scene and all sorts of things in the production world that i know nothing about (laughs) (laughs) but say you get two cameras do you watch them together do you watch them separately and in your mind just you see them together how does that work Well, I can view them together when they're grouped. I have a split screen view that I can, and one of the reasons the big monitor is great in my room. I have one monitor that's probably a, it looks like a 40 inch, because it's great to watch two to three, four clips together. We rarely have four cameras. We will have three cameras during an action shot where they might only want to run a take of action a couple of times or one time and grab it from three or four different angles. But generally, it's two cameras, and I can view them both at the same time on a split screen. And do you typically do that? I do for viewing, and then I I cut using the uh, one camera or the other, but it's great because even running it down in a sequence, if I say, oh, I want to see what's on the B camera here, I can just 
punch a little arrow on my keyboard and it will show me the B camera of that shot. You mentioned the script and as you're talking, I'm realizing how important the script is to you, partly because of the scene organization and, and also because of, you know, respecting the emotional beats, as you said, that, that the show is trying to convey. I've spoken with Justin Weinberger, who's the script coordinator, and asked him, you know, why do you keep sending out all these tiny versions? How do you keep up to make sure that what you're looking at is the latest version? Some of those tiny versions are sometimes put out so that the director and the crew who's shooting know some of the details. It might be a prop detail, it might be a location detail, it might be a line read for the actor. Mm. And I need to know about them, but really what I need to make sure is that my script is up to date when I'm sitting in my room with this footage and seeing what was shot so that I don't leave out any lines when I'm stitching it together that might have been shot. It's sort of a a reference for me. There's what's on the page and also then what's really going on in the scene, which is really what the tone meetings also help with because uh, the writers make it Joe and Joel, you know, leading the meeting really help clarify what's going on in this scene besides what just the words that might be being spoken, which are beautiful because the yeah. writing is, is beautiful on the show. So once I assemble this whole episode over the course of, say, 10 days, if they're shooting for seven or eight days, after I assemble all the scenes individually, I'll stick them all together and then work on the transition scene to scene. And then I'll put in some music, some score, where it feels like there should there should be some. And is that the final music? How likely is that music that you place there to be in the final version? Well, we have this composer, Nathan Barr, who's been on since season one, brilliant composer, and we have all of his cues in our Avid for all the seasons. Oh, so from previous? Yes. So we can pull cues from any season and put them into scenes today from this season and sometimes they'll work beautifully it can remain as a cue for the new scene that we're in now but oftentimes nate will score something new specifically to where our character is at now or a new character or what's going on in the scene specifically with beats where we want them accents you say about 10 days working on an episode. Is that your first cut, so to speak? Yeah, it's really the editor's cut. And then I present that to the director, and the director gets a number of days with me to do their pass with me. And then we present that to the producers. Joe and Joel and Chris Long and DreamWorks, Gramblin. There's a bunch of producers. And then notes from them filter through Joe and Joel and Chris, and, and I work on them. They're great in that they really, we don't get everybody's notes sent to us directly. Mm. It filters through Joe and Joel and Chris, and we work on what they want us to work on, addressing what notes. And they have, their pass is very intricate. It's usually the biggest amount of work is, is, is the work with Joe and Joel in the room. And then um, that's usually about a week's worth of work. And then we send that off to the network and get network notes. FX is really supportive you know, they're usually very reasonable. It sounds like you they are basically collaborating with a whole bunch of different teams after you've done your first pass from, with, with the more or less raw footage, right? Yeah. So it's an interesting combination of putting together these episodes basically on my own with my assistants. And um, the assistants do a lot of sound work. But um, it's really on my own here with the footage and the script 
really trusting my instincts and putting together what I like, basically, and what dovetails with what I've asked to find, listening to uh, what has been said and, and what the script says, but then opening up and listening to what a lot of other people want to see mm. and really listening to that and trying to find it in the footage because they don't stick around once they give us their notes. They give us our notes, then they leave, and I'm here to find it. Can you give an example of the kind of thing they're looking for? Sometimes it can be to accentuate a moment, like this is the biggest decision that they're making right now, so how do we land that moment more? Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's pacing up a scene, pulling out lines, and if it's not a big emotional scene, just moving it along a little bit. Because when you're initially cutting it, it's kind of hard to know what scenes need to be fatter and weightier. You know, I tend to cut everything a bit weighty <laughs> when I'm cutting the scenes. And then when you stitch it all together, it's kind of like, okay, this scene can actually clip along a little more to make more of the weightier moments. Because if they're all weighty, we're kind of bogged down and tired when we need to be really landing longer on the big emotional moments. Yeah. And sometimes it's this character feels too angry. Let's pull back and see if we can find something where they're a bit softer And sometimes we restructure things. We'll take a scene out of episode five and put it in episode four mm -hmm. or just restructure within our own episode. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we add act breaks because effects is very generous with us and lets us run long. But if we're over a certain length beyond what we're supposed to be long, we need to add an act break. So we'll try and figure out where we can put one. This is a show that is famously concerned with getting things right in the way that they present Spycraft, for example. One of the places that plays out is in showing how spies really evade surveillance or really do surveillance. Does the Jays' emphasis on accuracy change the way you edit? Again, it's sort of the footage that we have, that we work with. But I know, for one thing, that Joe Weisberg has always said, you know, can you just lower that volume? The idea of them speaking sato quietly. So I know by now in season six that if there's a scene where they're speaking, Joe's going to want the volume to be down. I can't play it at a, at a really high level because oh. it wouldn't make sense to spies walking and talking. Oftentimes, if they're in the laundry room, we'll put a sound effect in of clothes drying because we've seen in multiple episodes, they'll turn on the radio or they'll turn something on to help make noise in the room aside from their voices. So we'll sometimes put that sound effects in of the dryer going in the in the laundry room. There's a lot of looks that they do, but often those they're so good, Carrie and Matt, at looking like they're looking around without looking like they're looking around. Right. So I might edit in a way that would they wouldn't turn their head side to side. They're smart spies. They're not going to show that they're looking around. But they're such great actors, and they know at this point their characters that it really is so lovely to work on something for a long time and get to know what the writers, producers want, directors want, and also the performers know their character. So it just becomes not necessarily easier to cut, but it just feels like a flow in all departments. Do you have a sense of how many takes you might have in a scene like that? Because that's another thing that boggles mm -hmm. an outsider's mind is how do you pick a tiny piece of action from one take, another tiny piece of, and put that together? How many versions are you looking at when you're making your selection? 
I mean, on a television show, it would probably be very different to a movie where they might have met more days and a bigger budget, depending on the film, of course. But television, it's it's a pretty fast schedule. So they might not do the stunt, you know, more than a few times, which Mm. is one of the reasons they want multiple cameras catching it from different angles. I once had a colleague say, the worst thing you can do as an editor is nothing. Because once you start sticking it together, it sort of tells you what to to do next. Okay, Mm -hmm. let me try this. And then you go, well, that doesn't work. Let me try this. I've known some editors that can get to a place that they're happy with faster than I I necessarily can. But it's really just a trial. Now I want to see if this van's coming down the the street, I want to see this in a wide shot. But now after a wide shot, I feel like, well, what's going on inside the van? So now I'm going to try and cut in close. But it's tricky because you have to have a whole bunch of things happening at at one time in an action sequence like that. So you always have to make choices. It's not like a stage where you can see it all at one time. So it's tricky. Does this season feel different to you? Well, it feels hectic. There's a lot to shoot. It feels ambitious, very Mm. ambitious and emotional. I feel very lucky to be part of this show. I decided a couple weeks ago, I'm not going to spend the whole season being sad that it's ending because I really want to enjoy this season, which is great, has a lot in it. It feels big and it feels emotional because we are coming to the end and I feel sad about it. But I also think how lucky are we and how my to be on this amazing show for six years, a six-year run in New York City. It's, it's yeah. awesome. Thanks to Stephen Schiff, Justin Weinberger, and Amanda Pollock. Thanks also to Daniel Schrader for recording assistance and to the Americans' Sarah Nolan for organizational help. Please join us next week when we'll be discussing episode 607, Harvest, with some very special guests. I'm June Thomas. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.